All right. I'm going to scare you for a moment. It's 258 pages. But don't worry, it's not what we're doing tonight. So, unless we get there, we'll see. Hey, here's what I want to do before we, uh, before we dive into Scripture. I want us to spend a little time in prayer. This is, and hopefully you got the email from me yesterday. Uh, if you didn't, um, check your spam folder. And if it's not in your spam folder, contact us at the church and we'll see what's going on. But I sent you an email yesterday with prayer points. This weekend is a major, uh, a major weekend in the life of our students and student ministry. It's Revolution Weekend, or maybe if you go, I, I'm Revolution Weekend, old terms would be Disciple Now weekend for the students, where our students will be gathered all weekend. We've got uh, Ryan Fontenot, uh, is that his last name, Matt? Yes, I want to make sure I said it right. Uh, Matt Ryan, he came in and did some stuff with our football team uh, at Hendrickson last fall, and grateful for Ryan, and it's going to be a wonderful weekend. The theme of the weekend is challenging our students and equipping them how to, how to confidently be able to engage their peers uh, with the gospel and sharing their faith. And just to be clear, it was very evident to, to me, even back 12 years ago when I first became a student pastor, we are not going to reach teenagers for Jesus because we throw the biggest, coolest events at church where they all come and show up. For whatever reason, we put as, as churches a lot of money in that bag of ministry for a lot of decades, and I grew up in that time, and I watched a lot of friends come to the big event, raise their hand and pray a prayer, and not mean it whatsoever and fall right back into sin the next day with no discipleship whatsoever because it, it was all this. What I do think can reach the next generation is when that student who is a believer, who has a relationship with their friends, lives out their faith courageously, and in the context of that relationship with those friends, knows how to talk about Jesus and help their friends know the same hope and same a security and joy that they have in Christ. Ironically, that's the way the gospel spread ever since Jesus ascended into heaven. And so I'm not knocking the big event, but the aim and hope of this weekend and the way Matt's even structured the weekend is there will be op students are going to be equipped. They're going to get to go out into some unique ways, share the gospel. And then Saturday night, honestly, I've never seen a D-Now do this. I think it's awesome. There is an event late night Saturday night where our students have been inviting friends who don't know Jesus who maybe wouldn't want to come to the whole weekend to come to the late night event where there is a very talented Christian illusionist who will do a show and very clearly pre present the gospel that now we're going to have students who've been spending the whole week equipping, knowing how to follow up with their friends on. And so, but here's all this to say, as great as all that is, and Matt has done an incredible job. Our student team working with him has done an awesome job uh, planning everything. As great as all that is though, if we build it without the Lord, we labor in vain. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't move through that room and stir and touch hearts in ways that not any one of us, not even with the most eloquent of words and creative examples can, can do, it's all for naught. So I just want us tonight to spend a little time in prayer, praying over the weekend. Uh, we've got these prayer cards. Matt's got some in the backpack. Can, can a couple of y'all help me just scatter these out through some tables? Um, there's a Here you can, here's a few more, there you go. Yeah, uh, take, a, take a couple cards. There's several, about six or seven prayer points that Matt has listed on there. And as you get that, um, I'll, I'll let them pass uh, those out. And when you get that, I'm just going to give us several minutes. Um, and just you, you choose how to pray how you want around your table. One person can pray, and, or you can divvy out the different prayer points. I'm just going to give us a few minutes to just spend uh, on our knees, metaphorically, Unless you literally want to get on your knees, that's fine too. Um, it's also okay if you can't or don't want to get on your knees. Uh, but just being on our knees, prostrated in spirit before the Lord, asking God to move really in mighty and powerful ways. Here's what's interesting as they go this out. What's, what's in this big binder, I referenced Sunday, a, a study I had just found at the end of last week that I'd never seen or heard of before. The American Bible Society put out called the State of the Bible 2022. Massive study. Here's what's fascinating. There's five living generations that, that have people old enough to qualify as adults. The oldest would be your builders, then your boomers, their Gen Xers, your millennials, and then Generation Z, which is technically 10 years old to 25 right now, or 11 to 26 for this year. 
the two generations that have the highest above and beyond over 85% of these generations respond as being curious and having questions they want to know about Jesus and the Bible. The two most curious generations, your builders, the eldest generation, and Generation Z, the youngest generation. Not only the youngest generation, but they are only separated by about 2% in that. It's not like one's 85% and the other's 73%. And that, no, they're, they're both. So here's one of the realities. The students we're praying for as a generation where you might be inclined to go, man, they just don't have any, they just, no, they may not know Jesus, yes. But man, the stats say they are very curious about who Jesus really is, what the gospel really means. Is the Bible really God's word and can it really impact and God use it to change their lives? So we have got to pray that the Holy Spirit would meet them in that curiosity and we would be able to share the truth in that place, in that meeting. So pray at your tables and I will pray us into the word here in a moment.
Father, we thank you so much for um, the fact that this weekend we as a church get to sponsor and host and and even do something um, like bring our students together and, and to to challenge and equip them. And, and Father, we, there, there's a couple things we ask. Um, one is that for every student, whether they're a believer or a non-believer, whether they are here for the whole weekend or they just come to um, uh, the special event Saturday night, Father, that your presence would be so evident upon the whole weekend that our students who know you would be encouraged, would be emboldened, would know that they have met and, and, and met with and worshipped you, the real living God. And for those that don't know you, Father, that it would cause a deep unrest, curiosity, and conviction. Where they would begin to, to seek and, and, and wonder, wait a minute. Maybe this life isn't exactly what they thought it was. Maybe there is something more. Father, may our students walk away feeling emboldened, equipped, knowledgeable and how to broach gospel conversations with their friends. And Father, we just ask for, for many open doors for our students. Lord, the greatest mission field in our schools are the student, or the greatest missionary uh, force in our schools, Lord, are the students. We're grateful for the God-fearing teachers and administrators and coaches, but the students outnumber them all. So, Father, make Pauls and Barnabases and Timothys and Silases out of our students. Because, Father, they are not the future of the church. They are the church. And they are just as much a part of, and just as much our brothers and sisters, and just as much a part of your heart for this church and our role in this community as any one of us grown-ups in this room. Lord, bless Matt with wisdom. Fill Ryan with your anointed words. God, and may we celebrate this weekend lost students hearing the gospel, and if any are ripe, Lord, we just ask that they would come to you in faith. Bless our time as we open your word. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Okay, here's what we're going to do tonight. I've given you um, on your cheat sheet a basic summary of what I, I took about seven minutes Sunday in the sermon to uh, attempt to summarize. We're walking through Jude. I told you we're going to use a couple of these Wednesday nights. Jude brings up in, in the short amount of verses that it is, it brings up so many things that uh, either he summarizes in one simple statement, like the faith delivered once for all. Well, oh my goodness, you want to take three years of systematic theology in seminary and you're going to spend all three years unpacking that statement. He's going to go through, as you'll see Sunday, uh, you can pray for me, I'm terrified for Sunday because we've got to cover about nine different Old Testament examples, seven of which most of us in the, in the, in the American church and in the Western world just have no clue about. <laughs> and we don't have time to cover all the background, all of them. So we're going to just have to make the point and move on and we'll come back and do, dig, or, uh, dig deeper next week. But Jude unpacks this and Jude is so timely Because we are living in a day and age, and I've shared this before, so much of what I see today, heresy-wise, that is coming after certainly our young people, but let me just be straight honest, um, it's coming after the parents of our young people, your 30 and 40-year-olds, it's coming after the, the parents of our young adults who are becoming quickly empty nesters are 50 and 6 years. The reality is there, there's no generation exempt. And, and, if, and, and really from 60 down, you, you are seeing mass groups of people who would have claimed Christian faith 20 years ago who don't do it anymore in one way or another. So the, and, and, and what, what is different is not just the, the way my football coach would have likened it back in the day is we like to think the greatest enemy to the faith are our boxers. 
right? In boxing, it's me versus you. We face each other. I'm, you're putting all your energy in to come against me, and I'm putting all my energy to oppose that and come against you. It's obvious who's against who. If you're a wartime buff, it's, it's kind of like um, the, uh, the ridiculous chivalry of old-timey warfare where the red coats were in the red coats and the blue coats were in the blue coats. You knew which side was which, and they lined up respectfully across from another and just took their turn shooting. That's how we like to think, and, uh, and there's a lot of those threats that are obvious. A government persecuting Christianity a communistic government doing it. That's obvious. The reality is that's certainly a threat. The irony being that anytime a government's done that, the church ends up thriving and growing like, like crazy. The greatest threat would be an example of a certain kind of martial artist who is not going to oppose your momentum, but is who going... Who's, Someone who's going to take your momentum as you throw that punch, as you offer that kick, and use it to over-exaggerate against you and get you on the floor. The greatest threat is not lining up across from those wearing different, different color uniforms and lobbying shots like a dodgeball game, but with life-ending circumstances tied to it. The greater danger are those who have blended into the crowd, who have, I mean, what, what are all of our political thriller movies of the late 80s and early 90s. It's the sleeper cell agent from the foreign government who's, you wouldn't know, it's the Manchurian candidate. And there are a lot of Manchurian candidate pastors, theologians, speakers, authors, influencers in the, in the Christian community today. And Jude addresses that clearly. And so when he says, uh, I'm writing that you appealed, that you contend earnestly for the faith, you heard me share Sunday. Well, we got to know what on earth the faith is because it's really hard to contend for something if we're not really totally sure what we're contending for. And I, and I attempted to summarize what I've given you is, is a brief deal. So I want to come back to that, but dig a little deeper tonight than what we were able to in our time Sunday. And so I'll remind you of a few statements. When he says the faith... We're talking about absolute truth. The faith is the one true faith that is true for all people at all time in all places. It's absolute. It's objective, meaning that the one true faith that, that, that is given by God is not something that is subjective to your opinions or my opinions. It's not something that is... Um, that is true as long as enough of us support it. It's not everyone in the world could reject it and it would still be true because it's objective. It's not subjective to us. Uh, it's authoritatively handed down by God. We did not, human beings did not come up with the Christian faith, the orthodox, true Christian faith. We didn't come up with it. In fact, Scripture's clear. It's not that we loved God. It's not that we sought God. It's that God loved us and he sought us. He revealed himself to us. He is the one who has lighted the way. He is, and, and we'll come back to that in a second with what we're going to dive deeper, but that's, that's part of the key, part of the whole story of Scripture is it's God, the creator, who reveals himself to the creation from the very get-go. He's authoritatively handed it down. It's been perfectly revealed in Jesus. We don't believe in some pie-in-the-sky mystical Jesus. We believe in a Jesus who took on real humanity and lived a real life 2,000 years ago. Might in theory, even after he died and ascended into heaven, if there was still some carpentry work that he did, it probably still had his DNA on it. He's real. And he revealed perfectly who God is. He revealed perfectly the message of God, the salvation of God. He accomplished the salvation of God. The faith is then in, in, inerrantly recorded by the Holy Spirit. It's perfect without error. And he used human authors to do it. Over 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years writing in vastly different circumstances, yet, yet they do what not even our paid professional movie writers who know what they're trying to do can do. And produce a work that's got a cohesive story, a clear, a clear doctrine. And, and just remind you of some stuff we've looked at in the last year. 
There is no work of, and I'll use the term literature um, in an academic sense, there is no work of historic literature of any kind, fiction, nonfiction, graphic novel, manga, novel, textbook, whatever you want to throw out. There is no work of written recording that is more and better attested than the than Bible in all of history. From secondary documents, from copies of the manuscripts, from archaeological finds, none. And some will say, well, well, what about with all those manuscripts, the errors? Just remember, if someone says that there's errors in the manuscript, 70% are spelling differences. If you write my name with one S or two S, it doesn't change who you're talking about. Now, if you write it with two, you're wrong. <laughs> Which is why you won't find very many documents with two S's on it. 29% plus of the supposed errors are differences of, of somebody who copied gospel of God versus gospel of Jesus. I got good news for you. It means the same thing. Less than 1% are where there's an actual difference. And by an actual difference, we mean some of the manuscripts have the last eight verses of Mark, some don't. But there's nothing in the last eight verses of Mark that contradicts anything. In fact, one of the leading sleeper cells, if you will, critics of the Christian faith who claims to be a believer, but not in the way you and I would understand, is on the record academically as saying there is not a single ounce in the difference of the manuscripts that contradicts or undermines any biblical doctrine. And that's from a critic. So it's inerrantly recorded in the Word. And the Word was recognized by the church. We call that, we looked at that last spring, the process of canonization. And, and some will try to throw that as a trump card. Well, did you know your Bible? It wasn't always those 66 books. There's these other apocryphal books and, and it wasn't always those 66. Instead, that came about as a result of the emperor. No, 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 no. That is a twisting of how to read history. The reality is if you really go back and study, there is consensus all the time about what the Old Testament was. The Old Testament was well understood as being God's word in Jesus' day. There wasn't any debate about it. And yes, they knew of the other apocryphal books, and they were like, those aren't, even Josephus said, there's other books, but they're not pure the Word of God. When you come to the New Testament, there's great, there's one or two books that were somewhat debated, but debated with good intent. Jude was one of them. Why? Because Jude quotes from two apocryphal books. So they said, well, those apocryphal books aren't true, so is Jude out of his mind or not? The reality is Jude doesn't say those apocryphal books are true. He simply pulls something from them. That's a good example. No different than when Paul quotes from Cretan poets in Titus, is he saying all Cretan poets are inspired by the Lord? He just pulled something common from culture to use as an example to the letter he's writing to Titus, who's working with the churches of Crete. Just the, problem, the, the issue with the church was not developing doctrine. It wasn't figuring out the canon. The issue with the church and what you see is the church responding to challenges of heresy that forced the church to come out and say authoritatively, that's wrong because this is right. Here's what I mean. Why are all of a sudden in our state legislators are we having debates over various transgender bills? Because 50 years ago, that wasn't a challenge. So no one was thinking, you didn't have to say it 50 years ago that a, a, a biological male can't play in a biological female sport. You didn't have to 50 years ago. Why are we having to today? It's not because truth has changed. It's because a challenge to truth has come that wasn't here 50 years ago. The, the writers of the Bible didn't develop the doctrine that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It was always understood he's fully God and fully man. But the reason they had a church council about it is because groups started running around saying, well, he's either not fully God or he's not fully man. And so they had to address it in an official and formal way. That's the reality. We have an absolute objective faith clearly revealed in Jesus inerrantly recorded in the Word of God and sovereignly protected for, by God for us to believe. We said that Sunday. And then we defined it this way. Well, what is the faith? And this is what's on your cheat sheet. It's a cohesive story. I mean, it's one solid story. It doesn't contradict itself. It reveals a clear doctrine, which leads to a transfilled, formed, and fulfilled existence, which we would call eternal life. 
It's a cohesive story. We've used these worldview categories before. Creation, fall, redemption, glory. That's the story of Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the rest of chapter 1 proceeds to describe in six six 24-hour days the process by which God created and the order in which he created all of the physical universe. We also know from places like Colossians 1 that sometime before in places like Job, uh, Job 38, that sometime prior to the creation of the physical universe, he created the invisible domain, the unseen realm where the angels are, where heaven is. He created that realm prior because it says in Job as he creates the physical universe, the angels sang for joy and wonder at the amazement of God speaking the physical universe into being. He laid the foundations of the earth. We find that he creates everything with a perfect, all-knowing, all-good, all-loving, all-powerful design. He creates out of his love for his good and pleasure. Colossians chapter 1 will speak specifically about Jesus' role in creation. And it says, for Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn meaning the, the, the rightful uh, heir of all creation. All creation belongs to him. For by him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1 says that he literally up, upholds all of creation by the, word, the words of his own mouth, by the words of power. The things that we call laws, like the laws of gravity, those are the expressions of the words of Jesus upholding and sustaining all of the universe into existence by the sheer power of His will and word. Jesus was there in the beginning, John 1, creating. All of creation created by Him belongs to Him. It's for Him, sustained by Him. The pinnacle of all creation in the story is is humankind, mankind created uniquely and distinctly in the image of God. Nothing else in all of the physical realm, nothing else in all of the unseen realm, nothing else, nothing, no angel, archangel, cherubim, seraphim, nothing else in all creation bears the image and likeness of God but you and me. That's it. We are the pinnacle of everything God has created. We are the ones who bear his likeness. We are the ones that just as he created all of creation uh, for, through him and for himself, he created all of physical creation for us to go live out his image, his likeness, for us to go see and experience in the Garden of Eden what it means to walk with God, to see how God creates, to see how God rules, to see and experience how God loves. And we were to go then as as the human race, and leave Eden and be fruitful and multiply and spread out over this canvas of the world and to spread the culture of heaven, the culture of Eden to the whole world. This was God's original intent and design. And we were to do it distinctly biologically male and biologically female. Sex and gender, one and the same. Fearfully and wonderfully and perfectly made exactly the way God wants us to be made. And don't ever forget that, all of you in the room. I was talking to my dad earlier today about something, and I said, it's really tough to be someone who is wired to be a peacemaker, who instinctively, without trying, can feel uh, the, 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 the tension or joy or, to use a modern, the vibes of the room, And who is an unbelievable, crazy perfectionist. It's not fun to be me. And dad said, well, don't forget, God made you fearfully and wonderfully, so figure out why he made you the way he did and get on with it. I just simply say it. You may not feel the way, someone may not feel like they're fearfully and wonderfully. It doesn't matter how I feel. God did not make a mistake making me the way he made me, and that includes making me a man. And vice versa, this was the original intent. But we find in Genesis chapter 3, we find the fall. In this garden, in this place of Eden, Adam and Eve, says the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field the Lord had made. And 
And he said to the woman, Has God actually said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? I'll just pause there for a second. I'm going to tie this back to Jude. Notice what... So here is this watershed, make-or-break moment in the story of Scripture. Here's where everything is going to break, where death enters the picture, where the ideal of what God designed and created all of this for, for the way it's supposed to be, will no longer be. And how does it start? Not with, your God is wrong. But with, did your God really say something he, he said half of, but not all of? What Satan did is he repeated part of God's word, but twisted it. What he did is he didn't say something that was 100% a lie. He said something that was about half percent true, but because it's only half percent true, it's all a lie. And on the basis of appearing, by the way, do you notice there too, obviously Satan's appearance in the garden wasn't horrifying. How do you know that, Pastor? Because Eve and Adam seem completely and totally comfortable carrying on a conversation. Eve seems totally fine carrying on a very normal conversation, and it says Adam was standing right by the whole time, and he wasn't doing anything to protect her. Which is why the New Testament says Satan goes as an angel of light. And so, the way the story goes down, says it, the woman said, from the fruit of the trees we may eat, but the fruit in the middle we may not eat. If we eat of it we'll touch, and we'll touch it, we'll die. And the serpent said, you won't die. No, instead, God's holding out on you. He knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman begins to see. Temptation calls out. How oh, you know that? That fruit actually does look pretty tasty. Now, just for the record, it doesn't say it was an apple. So all you people who hate on apples and take a picture of Eve eating an apple, it doesn't say it was an apple. It didn't snow white. Give apples a bad name. But she sees that the fruit looks good. And she takes the fruit and she takes a bite. Now please pause with me for a second because this is also key doctrinally to understand something. She takes a bite. And if I, I, don't, I don't have one with me. I'm sorry. I should have thought this out better and had. If I had a piece of fruit and I handed it to any one of you and said, truly, there's, we're already living in the fallen world, so this isn't going to break the whole universe, so don't worry. Eat this fruit. If you were to eat that fruit, nothing, nothing very wicked about that. About all the things we're seeing going on in our world today, nothing very wicked about eating a piece of fruit. It's not murder. You didn't strangle anybody. You didn't shoot anybody. You didn't mangle someone's body. You didn't offer an explicit rage of profane words attacking somebody didn't slander anybody you haven't committed an act of sexual morality you just ate a bite of a piece of fruit that looked good and as soon as she takes that bite and her husband who's charged with leading the family stands by the whole time and negates his role and says nothing and when she hands him the fruit knowing him knowing full well because he's heard it at least twice what the actual command is and he eats that fruit. The entire universe breaks. And every time you succumbed to a sin, to the temptation of sin, and you feel that gross shame that comes afterwards, that bite of fruit. Every time, or, or as as I've walked through the murder of two family members and, and know and have seen things that I wouldn't want any human being to ever have to know and see, it goes back to that bite of fruit. Sin is not sin because of how bad the act is in our minds. Sin is sin because any disobedience to the Lord produces death, even if it's just the bite of a piece of fruit. And this breaks it breaks the relationship. Look what happens in it. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So all of a sudden, here is now a, a breaking. Once Adam and Eve, completely naked and unashamed, they, they walk with the glory, the, the unrestrained, glorified presence of God. They can hear the sound of him moving. They can hear his voice. broken. Now they hide themselves in sheer terror because they recognize their sinful. Now, mind you, their sinfulness is the same kind of sinfulness where Isaiah puts the words, woe is me, literally. I just want to be ripped apart and, and given hell because I have just experienced as a sinner the glory of God. By the way, all they've done so far as far as sin is they've just taken a bite of an apple. We've got to retrain how we think about sin. Sin is not bad based on how bad we decide certain sins are. Sin is bad because sin goes against the very character of God. And it doesn't matter if it's one sin or a million sins. It puts you in the same spot. Breaks the relationship between human beings and God. We who are made in His image. And by the way, you'll notice, we probably won't fully get there tonight, but you notice we who are made in His image. The fall doesn't remove his image from us. It just breaks it. We still reflect the image of God. But rather than reflecting it as a mirror, perfect in its reflection, it's broken and cracked and mangled and warped. Breaks our relationship with God, the relationship we were made for. Look at this. The Lord God said, uh, the, the man said, the woman you gave me, she made me do it. And, and the Lord God said, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. It now breaks our relationship with each other. Adam and Eve, man and woman, made to be the perfect complement. Relationship now is broken. Blame, strife, hardship. And then you look at God's curses to each. To so the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth and in pain you will bring forth children yet you will desire for your husband and he will rule over you looked at bethany the other day and i said man I bet you're really mad at eve right now it was a joke very clearly it was trying to lift up her spirits it was a bad day she said yes i'm very mad at eve goes to adam same thing curses the ground because of you and in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life here's the reality it breaks it breaks our relationship with the purpose God designed us for. God made the man and charged him with the keeping and cultivating of the ground. It now breaks his relationship to that work. God made the woman to be the perfect complement to man, and it now breaks the relationship she has with, with being the one who brings forth the children and with her relationship with, it breaks our relationship with our purpose. It breaks our relationship with ourselves. Which is why Jeremiah will say, Behold, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? You and I aren't even trustworthy enough to be able to really understand and fathom our own self. The fall enters the picture and breaks everything and brings death. And of course, in, a, in the midst of this, what will happen here in Genesis 3, though, two key clues to the rest of the story. In cursing the serpent, Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed. Her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, or he shall crush you on the head, you shall bruise him on the hill. Here is the first prophecy. Oh, even right here at the very beginning when only one sin has been committed, but death and destruction and mayhem has now been unleashed in all of the physical universe, here God makes it clear, I will fix this. And we know that God's response here is not because God's a quick thinker, and he, thinking on his feet, said, I'm going to come up with a solution. We know that the seed of the woman, the chosen one born of a virgin, he is the lamb who was slain when? Before the foundation of the world. And in the picture leading up to it, it says that the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, which means two things. Now, 
at least one animal has now experienced something that no one had ever or nothing had ever experienced prior to that death. An animal had to die. A sacrifice had to be made that their sin and shame could be covered. The fall. Redemption. This is the story from Genesis, really Genesis 4 all the way through Revelation 20. Uh, Genesis 4 through 11 show us just how bad the brokenness of sin gets. By the way, in one generation, in one generation you go from biting an apple to cold-blooded premeditated murder of one's own brother. One generation. The story reveals mankind to be broken, not inherently good, which was the rallying cry out of the Renaissance and rallies through today, through the Enlightenment to modern and postmodern times. But we see God didn't give up. Instead, when the world is wicked, He saves one who is righteous and preserves them in an ark. And when mankind again refuses to be fruitful and multiply and comes together at Babel, God confuses the languages. And in the midst of those people, Genesis 12, he picks one man through whose seed will be a great nation, more numerous than the stars, through whose seed will be a blessing to the whole world. And then all of a sudden, the story goes from Abraham, not to the child Abraham and his wife came up with the solution to have, but to the child of promise, the supernatural child who is the product of a 190-year-old man and woman. And that child traces that child and his two twins and the one who shouldn't get the inheritance but does. And that one has the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. And you see God take them down to Egypt where they multiply. And then they're oppressed and they cry out. God sends a deliverer to bring them up into the land. And in the process, he enters into a covenant relationship where they understand who he is. And if he's going to be their God, what he expects of them, not for them to work their way to his salvation. That's not what the covenant was. The covenant was, I want you to know life and life abundantly. And I am pointing towards, I am pointing you towards my solution to fix your problem. And I am seeking to give you the law to so you will be different and shine as a light to the world and you won't fall into the sin and awfulness of the nations around you who know no end to their depravity. And you watch this strand of God's faithfulness to His Word to bring a chosen Messiah through a chosen lineage. And you watch as God moves in the course of history, orchestrating events all throughout the Old Testament, leading up to in the fullness of time, according to Galatians 4, a Savior was born to us. Born of a virgin. One who has always existed because He is in the beginning and He is with God and He is God. One who is fully God, who, according to Philippians 2, humbled Himself and took on flesh to become like us to live the life we failed to live, to die the death we rightfully deserve, but not to stay there, but to rise from the grave, to offer a salvation, the crux of which is not the covering and forgiveness of my sin. Yes, that it does, but that's not the end goal. The end goal is to do that so we can be restored to a right relationship so the image of God can be restored in us. And we reflect Him so that we can know life eternal, which life eternal is not once you die, but according to Jesus is to know God and the one He sent, Jesus, redemption. And then we see the rest of the New Testament as we've walked through it these last months, unpacks how are those of us who've now responded to this offer of salvation by Jesus, how now does it transform us? It transforms our mission. It transforms, we're ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven. It transforms our purpose to know and love God with all of our being. It transforms the way we live and we now, it doesn't just transform us, but unlike the Israelites who had no internal empowering of God himself to enable them to overcome sin and to walk in holiness, 
We have been filled and permanently sealed with the Holy Spirit, God Himself, who lives within us and by His grace empowers us to actually live out the transformation He's brought. And we do this. Redemption. Until the trumpet blares and the heavens part and we see our Savior descend on the white horse and return and judge the living and the dead, those outside of Christ to an eternity of bearing the right and just punishment and deserved wrath for their sin. For those who have taken the offer of Christ to a life the resurrected body where we are restored both body and soul to live in a new heaven and a new earth where God's dwelling place is not in the invisible realm but is amongst us, the pinnacle of His creation and His people. The story of Scripture is really the inverse of the classic story of Frankenstein where a doctor attempts to make a being in his image but he fails. And he's left with a hideous, broken image of himself. And the creator wants from the creation. The creation spends the novel seeking to find his creator because his purpose, his value, his worth is tied into his creator. When he sees that his creator has rejected him, it creates this hatred where he comes after him, which is often how the world likes to view up to God, but that's not the story Scripture presents. Instead, Scripture presents a story where God succeeded he made, he made beings in his image and we broke and marred ourselves and we've spent the story running as far as we can and he spent the story chasing every last one of us with an offer to restore and reconcile us to himself. This is the cohesive story of scripture and any Doctrine, any ethic, or any interpretation of Scripture that would deny this story. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you quote to try to back it up, because you can, you can justify anything with a Bible verse. Let's just be clear. Anything that doesn't fall in line with this, the one true story of the one true faith, is not of the Lord, but of the enemy. Now that one true story reveals a clear doctrine with the transformed ethic. But it's 7 o'clock, so we'll come back to that next week. Thank you for being here. Uh, let me pray us to close. And uh, do get excited. I, I say I'm nervous for Sunday. You should always be praying. But I, uh, I, I am excited because Sunday, I, I, I truly... Um, Sunday will be fun. There's a lot of crazy stuff there in that few verses of Jude, but I would appreciate your prayer. The reality is we don't ever know who's, sit, who's sitting in church on Sunday. And we're going to have to, Jude's going to force us to have to name some things relatively specifically that are being preached in the name of Jesus that aren't. And that can always be somewhat intimidating. However, it's not really intimidating because when we preach the truth, there's the actual possible possibility of real repentance and life change. But we've got to be praying for that because that's a work. We'll preach, I'll preach the truth. And I'll make that promise to you. I'm going to have to stand before God. So I've got a lot more fear in my life than what, what you think or don't think. Because I've got to give account to the Lord for preaching His Word. We're going to preach the truth. We're going to do it the way the Lord would do it. In clarity and in love and, and grace. But please join me in praying that hearts would receive it, that veils would be lifted. Because only, only in the one true faith will anybody know grace and mercy, peace and love. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for the joy and wonder it is that any one of us in this room have been saved by your grace. And Lord, we do just ask that you open doors this week, not just to the students, but us, that you open doors to hearts. Father, that people who come in Sunday who don't know you, whether they think they know you or whether they know they don't know you, but they, for some reason, have showed up, Lord, that they, uh, that hearts would hear truth 
And that, Lord, is only you can, that the veil of their hearts that the enemy is seeking to keep constantly for them from seeing the truth, that it would just be lifted and rent, uh, uh, rended and, and, and that hearts would respond to you. God, and even for us, it may be that for many of us, we, we, we've clearly stood and we've not fallen prey to the false doctrine. We're not guilty of those major sins. But Lord, we can be guilty of being grumblers and fault finders. And even if we're not guilty of that, you look at the church in Ephesus and Revelation and say, you preach the truth, you stand against, you stand against heretics, you're doing ministry, you're out there sharing the gospel, and I have this against you. You've left your first love, and if you don't repent, I'll remove your status as a church. So Lord, in our hearts, where our hearts are not in a pure-hearted and real humble love of you, may our hearts not harden our own ears. Holy Spirit, to your grief and conviction, but may we respond to you as you move and stir in our hearts. God, you hadn't called us to play church. You've called us to be your people. So Lord, shake the heavens. Come down. Rend the veils. Fill our hearts. May our answer be yes. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.